Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs. Today I have Jonathan Sleeman. He's at the U.S. Geological Survey's National Wildlife Health Center. We're going to talk about emerging viral diseases and uh, global trends in emerging viral diseases of wildlife origin. So um, again, Jonathan's currently the center director for U.S. Geological Survey's National Wildlife Health Center, and we're going to talk about his work. So Jonathan, thanks for coming. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, how expansive is your mandate? Uh, Are you looking at just particular diseases, one here, one there? Are you looking at the entire globe? Are you, you know, like what what does your mandate look like and what does your work look like right now? Yeah, sure. So the um, U.S. Geological Survey's National Wildlife Health Center has a pretty u- unique mission. Our, our mission is to advance wildlife health science for the benefit of animals, humans, and the environment. Our mission is mostly domestically based here in the United States. And one of our key activities is that we conduct what we call general surveillance for wildlife diseases as well as targeted surveillance, specific diseases of of highest concern. What I mean by general surveillance is is that we do investigations whenever there's um, die-offs of wildlife, and we look at everything from from frogs to rabbits to bats to deer, um, anything that could potentially be carrying a pathogen. Is your focus right now anything related to, you know, COVID and figuring out, uh, you know, zoonotically where it originated, or are you focused on other things and that hasn't changed? So regarding the, the current COVID-19 pandemic, clearly the concerns and protection of public health are paramount. But one of the things that, that we know is the fact that this current virus, the SARS-CoV-2, is genetically, genetically related to strains of coronaviruses found in bats in China. Therefore, one of the concerns that have been, has been risen is whether this virus could spill back into bats from people, a process that's called reverse zoonotic transmission. So we've been doing uh, risk assessments to look at the probability of this, of this virus moving from humans to bats through various ways that humans contact bats, through management activities, wildlife rehabilitation, and also from nuisance control operations. If this virus is well adapted to bats, one of the concerns is that the, is there could be sustained transmission of the virus among bat populations, and it could become a source of infection for people in the future. So we're really trying to get an understanding oh, okay. of... Yeah, I was wondering why, you know, I mean, no offense against bats, I'm sure they're lovable, but but why would people care if it goes back into bats? So you're saying that, then it would what? It could get even worse and recombine and then circulate back out again? That's a possibility, yeah. So it, it could be that this um, virus uh, becomes established in bat populations and they're a source of infection for people in the future. But as you mentioned, the other concern is is that these, these coronaviruses are very interesting in that... Um, they have fairly long um, pieces of DNA of, of RNA and are consequently uh, prone to mutation, and therefore they adapt quite readily. They, they evolve, they mutate quite readily, and they also recombine with other strains. So one of the other concerns is that um, the SARS-CoV-2 could recombine with a North American strain and create a new virus. Huh. I mean, has that has that been observed to happen, or like what you know, what what about the uh, a given virus would dictate whether it would recombine in this way or not, preferentially? So that 
what I just mentioned, I'm not aware of, of being recorded in, in the United States, but that's how they believe these coronaviruses adapt to, to infect people. The, the virus is, uh, the progenitor is a bat virus. Somehow that bat virus gets into an intermediate host. In previous outbreaks, like with SARS and MERS, that was civet cats or, or camels. They then recombine with another, another coronavirus to create a new coronavirus that then goes, up, goes on to infect people. So that's the process that we understand of how these viruses evolved to become uh, human viruses and human pandemic viruses. So we're, I'm getting a little, going to get a little technical here, but the, most of the coronaviruses that we know of in the United States are what's called alpha coronaviruses. So it's a different type of group that, okay. than, than the um, coronaviruses that, that cause SARS and the current COVID-19, which are beta coronaviruses. So we have a very unusual situation is in that we have a beta coronavirus that we're not aware of uh, being in, in the United States before, spreading rapidly amongst, amongst people. And therefore, it really is a, a sort of now a new experiment whereby this virus could then come into contact with North American strains of coronavirus. And we really don't know what, what, what the consequences could be. Yeah, what's the difference between uh, an alpha and a beta coronavirus? Because this uh, SARS-CoV-2 supposedly is a beta coronavirus, right? Yeah, it's just the way that it's the... Uh, the way they classify them by, by phylogeny. So, so they, these viruses group by relationship, by how closely genetically related they are into these different groups. So there's alpha coronaviruses, which mostly found in mammals. And it's the most common alpha coronavirus we find in bats in North America. There's the beta coronaviruses, which, as you mentioned, uh, are found in, in old world species, particularly bats. And, and they're the ones that, that have led to these um, epidemic or pandemic human viruses. And then there's, there's gamma and delta coronaviruses, which are not known to cause any human illness and are mostly found in, in avian species in birds. Okay. So uh, when you talk about surveillance, what does surveillance look like? I mean, I've heard of flu surveillance, but that's, uh, I guess, testing of people and seeing what new strains are coming. I mean, what does virus surveillance look like from your guys' perspective? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we do two main types of, of surveillance. One is what's called general surveillance. So we have a network of partners. These are mostly uh, folks that work for the state and federal wildlife management agencies who are in regular contact with wildlife and regular observations of all wildlife out there in parks and refuges on the various lands. And if they simply see something unusual, animals behaving unusually, or they see dead animals, they will report it to us or to other laboratories. We'll, they will instruct them to safely collect carcasses or samples. They'll ship those, those animals to us to our, our facility. Now, we maintain what's called biosafety level three um, laboratories. So, so these are biosecure facilities. We have special procedures and facilities so we can contain any, any potential contagious agents. Our pathologists will then examine these animals. They'll, they'll, they'll open them up. They'll do a, what's called a necropsy, which is the animal equivalent of an autopsy. They will collect tissue samples. They'll collect swabs and other samples. And those samples will be sent to our, to our diagnostic labs. And they'll, they'll run various analyses, depending on what the pathologist finds, to, to look for different pathogens. So for some hmm. cases, like for bats, we automatically screen them for coronaviruses uh, because of the interest and concern. So we'll take a swab from the mouth and from the rectum. Those swabs will go to our lab and they run an analysis called a PCR, uh, which looks for the genetic signature of that virus. And if there's a match, we can, we can find it. When you do the uh, PCR, you're looking at the full strain of the, uh, or, sorry, the full sequence of the virus or just a conserved part? It's just particular targets that, that match the primers. And we have, a, we have a different types of PCR. So we have one that's, that's um, what we call a universal coronavirus PCR that will find any type of coronavirus that, that's known. 
And then we have primers that are more specific for particular types of coronavirus, such as the SARS-CoV-2. So we usually run multiple tests. If we get a positive sample, we, we do what's called sequencing. We'll take that a sample and we'll sequence it to make sure it is the, the virus that we believe we found. Okay. So um, you're looking at, again, uh, in various parks and places, you're looking for animals that have died that, uh, what, they're, they're not eaten? Or are they eaten by other wildlife just as much as uh, normal animals? Or are these animals sick and is that somehow sensed by other wildlife and they don't eat them or, or no? Yeah, I mean, uh, so that's one of the challenges that we have in, in our system is that um, dead animals are often quickly scavenged. But in situations like this where there's heightened concern, you know, the biologists in the field will go out on regular um, transects or regular visits to look for carcasses and that's so they're able to find them and pick them up before they get scavenged. So that's why we actually do the, the other type of surveillance that I mentioned, which is called targeted surveillance, which is where we go at, out and actively capture and handle animals and sample them directly for the particular disease we're interested in. So sometimes we'll, we'll actually sample hunter harvested animals because that's obviously a opportunistic way um, to, to collect samples all go out and do trapping. Uh, so for bats, we can, we can catch them in mist nets. We can catch them in what's called harp traps outside of, outside of uh, caves and high binocular. And we can pick them up and we can directly sample them um, that way. Um, so that's the other method that we used if we're really interested in a, in a particular pathogen and we really want to know uh, if it's in a particular species, a particular area, we'll do that what's called active surveillance. Okay. So uh, some examples of maybe the recent past, what happened what did you figure out and, and what were the consequences of it? Yeah, so we've got several interesting stories. One of them, um, for example, is, is back in 2006, 2007, the biologists in, in, in New York Department of Conservation um, started reporting seeing bats flying outside caves in the wintertime. Um, this is very unusual behavior because they should be hibernating. There's no food for them because they eat insects. And so the fact they were uh, emerging out of hibernation and moving around was very unusual. So in collaboration with, with others, we, we sent a team in. And what they discovered was these bats, there's a large number of them were dead on, on, on the uh, cave floor. The ones that were alive had this sort of really, really um, interesting sort of fuzzy white material on their noses and on the other parts of the, of the skin. Um, so we took some samples, um, put them into culture, and actually, that's how we um, identified the cause of back whiteness syndrome. Um, this is an introduced fungal infection um, from probably from Europe. It's caused devastating um, uh, declines in insectivorous bat populations. Over millions and millions of bats have died, uh, and really is has has caused some some quite profound population losses. So that's one example where we you know the recognition of unusual behavior led to the discovery of this this novel disease. We, we're also able to find the introduction of highly pathogenic avian influenza or bird flu into North America via migratory birds through a mortality event. Um, so a number of ducks had died on a pond in, in uh, Washington state back in 2014. Um, because we routinely sample these animals for avian influenza, uh, as a consequence of this mortality event, we were able to find um, this, these Asian strains of bird flu that are most likely being brought in by mig migratory birds. Unfortunately, that, that virus went on to cause uh, uh, some pretty large outbreaks in commercial poultry operations and was on the largest animal health emergencies that, that um, this country, the U.S., had ever experienced. So that's a couple of examples of how our work allows us to discover these emerging diseases. So uh, is there a lot of work being done right now to surveil the, uh, the bats that appear to be or appear to have the closest sequence to SARS-CoV-2? Or can you get to that area in China? I've, you know, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, it's 
a thousand miles away from Wuhan. Is there anyone on the ground? I mean, I've also heard there's people living in those areas in close connection with those bats. I mean, you know, what's the real deal? What's the real news? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, our, our mission is mostly domestic. We work mostly in the United States. We do have a fair amount of collaboration internationally. We work uh, with the World Organization for Animal Health, but we don't do a lot of our own field work internationally. I imagine the Chinese government is doing some sampling. I know other research entities have, have done samples, sampling other countries. So what we're focusing right now are sampling here in the United States. What's the primary focus of your domestic sampling right now? What are you looking for and what, what are the big projects going on? Yeah, so related to, to coronaviruses, um, right now we're conducting a risk assessment. So there's a lot more information coming out about what species could potentially be susceptible to this virus. Uh, we're taking that information and, and, and any other information we know about you know, susceptibility. And we're going to do a, what we call a risk assessment. So looking at which species are likely more likely than others to be infected. And then we're going to target our surveillance um, for those species. So um, we're right now designing that surveillance system. Um, but we do know the bats will likely be a species that we sample. Um, probably uh, felids, you know, cats, and mustelids, you know, mink, and ferrets, because they've been reported to have been infected. But there may be other species that could be um, um, somewhat unusual, like deer. Um, there's some evidence that, that they may be, um, may be susceptible uh, based on the um, relatedness of the ACE2 receptor, which is the receptor the virus attaches to to infect an, infect an animal, as well as some potentially rodents. So we're right now looking at that. But then once we have done that risk assessment, we're going to design a system where we can actually go out and sample these animals. So we can look for native North American coronaviruses, but also look at the potential spillover of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in, into North American wildlife. Does there appear to be any uh, transmission to even domesticated animals here in the U.S. or any other wildlife? So right now, there's, there's no evidence that, that animals, domestic animals, nor wildlife are a source of infection for people. But there have been some of these um, uh, cases of reverse zoonotic transmission where people have infected animals. There was a couple of cats, I believe, domestic cats that were infected in, in New York that, that showed some um, clinical signs. There was a dog um, in North Carolina, I believe, that um, was tested positive, but I don't believe showed any, any signs. And then uh, internationally, there was an outbreak on a mink farm. There's been some um, domestic animals infected in, in Europe. Oh, and of course, there was a case of um, some tigers that were infected and, and large cats infected at a zoo in New York. So it does happen. We do know this virus can spill back or transmit from people in, into, uh, into animals. So far, it appears to be a rare event, and it's mostly associated with, with infected people being in close contact with these animals. So the CDC and others recommend that um, you know, if, if someone is, is diagnosed positive or, or showing signs of, of, of infection with COVID-19, that they ask another family member in the same household to take care of those, those animals and, and they avoid you know, close, close contact to prevent that type of infection. Okay. Um, are there any, I mean, domestic animals here that, uh, I guess, well, I mean, I guess some cats, uh, they may be a reservoir for people for Toxoplasma gandhi. Um, but are there any animals here in the U.S. that uh, domestically people come into contact with a lot? You know, I don't know, from cattle, does anything come from, you know, from pigs, from, you know, cats and dogs? Or for some reason, they don't seem to uh, transmit to people very much. So you're talking about like other types of zoonotic diseases? Yeah. Are there any worries or things that you're surveilling and looking for? You know, again, would, do you think a, a major possibility could come from 
let's say cows or pigs or dogs or cats, you know, these are animals that at least domestically, a lot of people are in contact with relatively. Yeah. Certain so, birds or, you know. Yeah. So, so, um, so our focus is, is on the wildlife sector, the wildlife component. Um, I, I'm probably not the best person to comment about domestic animals, if that's okay. Yeah, no, no, no worries. No worries. Uh, what, what's, what's your particular focus right now? What, uh, you know, what are you looking at literally for the year ahead? Well, I, I think sort of priorities for the United States in terms of wildlife diseases is, is bat white syndrome continues to be a big issue for us. So we're working, working in collaboration with Fish and Wildlife Service and other agencies to conduct surveillance for that disease as it spreads across the landscape. And we're starting to look at trying to develop some management tools, like a vaccine that can be delivered um, orally to, to bats to hopefully protect them. Um, chronic wasting disease, which is a pre unassociated disease of deer and elk here in the U.S., is, is, a, is a continued concern. It's a, it's a disease that's caused by a, an infectious protein called a prion, um, and, it, and it passes from deer to deer and also can contaminate the environment, and deer can become affected from the environment. Once they become infected, they invariably die. So there's obviously concerns about its potential effect on deer populations. And these prions, um, there are types of prions that can infect people. So there are some concerns about whether this prion could also infect people. Um, so there's a lot of research going on right now to see if, it, if that prion could jump the species barrier, although right now there's no evidence it has. Um, we continue to be concerned about the introduction of bird flu from Asia. So we're continuing that, that work. As I mentioned, we're starting to look at doing some surveillance for coronaviruses. So there's no end, no shortage of problems for uh, us to work on. Mad cow disease from years ago. Did you have any insight into that? Were you uh, involved in any surveillance back then when this happened? And any comments on it? Yeah, no. So, so mad cow disease is a, is, a, is a disease of domestic cattle. And, and that's uh, the responsibility of the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, and they do all surveillance in, in domestic species like cows. So we, we were not involved in any any work on mad cow disease. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was that segmented. Huh. Yeah, it, it is. You know, that's a, it's a, an interesting point, actually. So, so, you know, the Centers for Disease Control um, do work on um, human diseases and people. Uh, we do work on wildlife diseases and wildlife. And the USDA do diseases and domestic animals and livestock. So but one of the things we've recognized over the years is, is those diseases don't, don't respect those species barriers. They can jump from wildlife into livestock and vice versa and, and from people to wildlife. And so we have very much taken what's called a one health approach, where we work very closely together uh, on these issues of mutual concern with a goal of optimizing outcomes for, for animals, humans and, and, and the environment. So, so, for example, with COVID-19, there is an interagency one health uh, COVID-19 coordination team is led by the CDC, but it includes participation from USDA. Department of Interior, uh, FDA, Department of Defense, and, and other federal agencies to help us coordinate our, our, our response, to help uh, share information, um, to help come up with um, joint messaging and, and FAQs, to help come up with joint guidance uh, and, and um, other types of documents. So, so yeah, it, it is an interesting, you picked up an interesting point. It is, is, is fragmented, but we are doing what we can to coordinate and work together. Okay. And then, um, I don't know, any particular stories or events that uh, you've come across that really, I don't know, just really affected you or changed your perception of how these diseases start or spread or move around? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, white-nose syndrome in bats, as I mentioned earlier, is a, is a fascinating lesson in, in how these diseases emerge 
and just the, the, the profound negative consequences they can have. It, it's a fungus. It was probably, we don't really know how it came to North America, uh, but we think most likely on, most likely accidentally on the boots of somebody that was visiting caves in Europe and then came into the United States. So I think it illustrates one of some of these drivers of emerging disease, how you know, the movement of people was so globally connected now, how people moving across the globe can bring pathogens from one continent to another, you know, breaking down those geographic barriers that used to prevent diseases jumping continents. But then it also shows how once they get into these new ecological niches and find new hosts, how they can just explode. And this, this disease went from discovery in New York uh, in 2006. It's now in, in over 30 states and has reached the West Coast and has devastated bat populations. I think the also the interesting thing, this, it's the fact that it's such an uh, infectious fungus and such a lethal fungus. You don't normally think of fungi as being deadly. You know, athlete's foot is irritating, but doesn't normally kill you. So, so it just shows you how much, how little we know sometimes about these pathogens and which pathogens could be potentially pathogenic. So I think that's a really interesting um, case study in, in all these factors, the drivers of disease and how devastating they can be. And I think there's parallels, right, with, with, with COVID-19. This is a disease that emerged most likely in China, uh, but, but has spread very rapidly across the world but just because of how connected we are these days. Yeah, that's true. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about uh, U.S. Geological Survey and the various activities you're looking into? And, you know, if someone's working in an area where they notice something, how do they report a suspicious death of an animal, et cetera? Yeah, so um, USGS has a very good website. You just, just basically Google U.S. Geological Survey. You should be able to find um, our main homepage. Uh, the National Wildlife Health Center has specific, specific pages. So, again, just Google National Wildlife Health Center and we should come up. The general public are, you know, regarding wildlife, we, we recommend that people enjoy wildlife from a distance. But if you do see sick animals or dead animals, we highly recommend contacting your state wildlife agency, uh, you know, for your particular state that you live in and, and talking to them directly about and they should be able to advise you on what to do. OK, very good. Well, Jonathan, thanks for coming on the call and I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.